welcome to the first episode of the Feast and Forum podcast. I'm Camden, and today we're talking about farming in America. And I can't think of a better place to start conversations about our food system than where food starts, on the farm. Now, our industrial farming system has had its fair share of public shamings. There are hours of documentaries on Netflix showing us how unsustainable modern farming can be. But what is sustainable? Well, hopefully this podcast will help to make that question a little more clear. Of course, we can't even begin to scratch the surface of American farming in a 30-minute episode, but I think we gave it a really good shot. I hope you enjoy. So if you saw me in the egg last week, you might have noticed my poster with a question. Is modern farming in America sustainable? And the responses I got were not surprising. Take a listen. So is modern farming in America sustainable? In the short, absolutely not. I would say no. No, it is not. On a mass scale, I would have to say no, it is not sustainable. No. (laughs) I think that a lot of people would answer no. I don't think really anyone would answer yes, even the farmers. (laughs) Um, I don't think so. Uh... Yeah, personally, I when I think of the American uh, consumer system that we have in agriculture, I don't think of it as a sustainable thing. Some of it, but not all of it, and mm. mostly not all of it. <laughs> Clearly, we are all well aware that there's an issue with farming in America. But what exactly do we mean by farming in America? Well, CIA's very own Dr. Taylor Reed has essentially dedicated his life to farming, not only academically, but in practice as well. He has a master's degree in botany and plant pathology and a doctorate from Michigan State in community food and agriculture. He also spent four years as the education director on the Tompkins Cortland Community College farm, where he worked full-time in the fields. He is no doubt one of, if not the person, to speak to on campus about farming. And I got the chance to sit down and talk about my conversations with you guys. So we're talking about farming in America. And farming in America is admittedly a really broad topic and episode title. So perhaps to further define what we mean, we have to think about what farming in America makes us think of. Uh, Because for me, at least, the way I think of conventional farming now is very different than it was before you know I, I watched the plethora of netflix documentaries as we spoke about um and especially before i came to school here and took the farm to table concentration and i don't think i'm alone in this so do you think that the public image of farming in america has changed or is changing well i think farming has changed a lot um in the last hundred years i mean there are some um you know, statistics that are are really shocking in terms of um, we have a lot less farmers now. We have a lot less farms now. Farms are much, much bigger. Equipment is much, much bigger, um, even than 20 years ago, or certainly 50 years ago, and absolutely 100 years ago. Um, And the kind of production that we do um, for growing a lot of our food anyway Um, is very mechanized, um, very hands-off, very dependent on chemical fertilizers and uh, pesticides. And and it seems to be increasingly headed in that direction. So if farming in America makes us think of a system that is unsustainable, 
What would sustainability mean? We often use the word sustainability as a goal without really defining it. So I asked the big question, what would farming that is sustainable look like? That's a huge question, yeah. but I, I think it's an important one because I think, you know, we, we, we use the, the term sustainable a lot. In fact, I think it's, it's so overused and so co-opted that it's really lost its meaning in a lot of ways. Um, for me, you know, there are, are three pillars to sustainability. There's the environmental sustainability that most of us think about when we hear the word. Uh, there's economic sustainability and um, there's social sustainability. Um, and I think that we need to, I think that there are challenges to all of these um, in, in American farming today. And in order, to, um, in order to address the sustainability challenges, we need to address all of them. As we discuss these issues further, it's important to keep these three pillars of sustainability, environmental, economic, and social, in mind so that we can have a more well-rounded idea of what sustainability is supposed to look like because these issues can be mind-bogglingly complex so being able to know which angle to approach them is crucial in my conversations with you guys one issue seemed to come up pretty consistently monocropping is huge like you have farms with just the whole thing is just potatoes mass agriculture is is an overwhelming institution of monoculture. You have these farmers and we'll just plant one crop all the time, like every year, back to back, and they're just destroying the land. Monocropping is like, it's just kind of destroying the soil, which is leading to a lot more problems. When you think of the agricultural system in America, you think of this like uh, uh, monoculture agriculture, where there's only one thing on hundreds of thousands of acres of land. So I brought this up to Dr. Reed. In my conversations with students, the issue that came up the most consistently was monocropping. And the reason behind this is because it decreases biodiversity. So what is biodiversity and why is it so important to sustainable agriculture? Well, biodiversity is, um, you know, it's a hybrid word. It, uh, it's, it's a melding of the words biological and diversity. Biological, um, biology is the study of living things, and diversity is having a lot of different things. So biodiversity means having a lot of different living things um, in a place. And biodiversity uh, is, is uh, it's the blueprint for successful uh, natural systems. Um, there's a very clear linear um, relationship between the amount of biodiversity in um, an ecological system and the productivity of that system. The more um, different living things in a system, the more, the more biomass is generated, the more productive it is. Um, and and uh, what we've chosen to do with our agriculture is really to focus on producing one thing at a time uh, on what um, we've thought of it as efficiency you know but when you're growing potatoes efficiently um, you're also using a lot of other resources when you're killing off trying to kill off everything else that grows there um, so um, monoculture is is problematic um, but it's it's really it's it's really inherent 
to our agricultural system and it's it's difficult to change. So if biodiversity is so important in uh, monocrop or monoculture is so detrimental to biodiversity, what are some other ways of farming that are beneficial to biodiversity? Well, I, ideally, um, the organic uh, system is is meant to be biodiverse. There are spe- specific things written into the the organic rules um, that that focus on um, the diversity of the system. Just to clarify, Dr. Reed is referring to the USDA's regulatory system for labeling products as organic, as well as other regulation systems. And certainly most organic systems are more biodiverse uh, than um, conventional agricultural systems. But um, somewhat predictably, I think, the organic um, organic farming has um, sort of, it's 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 become somewhat subsumed by the same system that focuses on, you know, how much cheap food can we possibly grow um, as efficiently as possible. So organic labeling is a promising start, but is still susceptible to our obsession with efficiency. But what would a system look like that isn't necessarily designed for efficiency, but for longevity and resiliency instead. Here's an interesting student response. Something sustainable is how the earth is supposed to work. You know, that uh, everything in the earth uh, is kind of in this uh, beautiful symbiotic relationship. And um, we should go back to that. I thought this idea of going back to some kind of previous relationship with food was interesting. So I asked Dr. Reed about it. Well, I think, you know, I th- the word that I would use is reconnect. You know, we, we, need to recon- we, we need to redevelop our relationship with food. And, um, and I think permaculture is an amazing tool for that because it's so forgiving. You know, a, 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 I mean, a permaculture system, you can, you can sort it's, it's basically you're trying to replicate a natural system and, and nature's very good at doing what it does. Permaculture, what Dr. Reed is referring to here, is a method of farming in which plants, both perennials and annuals, are selected and planted together with longevity and resilience in mind. Hence the name being the combination of the words permanent and agriculture. And there's a real-life example of this system being put into place on campus. Becky Petternell, who is in the Applied Food Studies capstone class with me, is installing a permaculture system in the teaching garden across from the egg. I was able to speak with her about her project. Uh, my overall goal for this project is to help Dr. Murphy transition the teaching garden here at school into more of a permaculture garden. Um, and that was because when we got sent home from our COVID, it had a lot of annual plants in there that either died or the perennials that were in there got overgrown. And you know we had to rip it out with our class um, so she wanted to not allow that to happen again and kind of be more hands-off with it and just have it be more of an actual teaching garden where you go in and learn about the plants mm-hmm. and not like have to constantly keep up with it. So, so permaculture in the teaching garden is a way to have prolonged farming without mm-hmm. a lot of inputs, right? Yes. That's, that's the idea behind it? Yeah. How would you define permaculture? 
Permaculture to me is a very holistic and natural way of farming. Um, if you can do it, I think it's the best way to do it because um, you're not constantly tearing things out of the ground and disturbing the soil and stuff like that. Like you said, it takes very little input once you've been established. And the whole goal of it is that everything is either taking up nutrients and then something's putting it back, something's suppressing the quote unquote bad weeds you don't want and then you know something's providing shade if it needs to be shaded and then the other things that are taller need full sunlight and so it's just this very natural system that's supposed to work all together and make our lives like easier yeah so what what will the garden look like physically when you're done or what what is the goal for it to look like when you're done it's gonna be similar to how it is now I'm not adding too many things but um I'm gonna add some berry bushes in there because you know that's an easy thing for students to use I'm also gonna add a medlar tree um, and do a fruit tree guild off that with mostly medicinal herbs um, for like their healing properties and stuff um, and the medlar tree is from Southeast Asia I believe and there are these little brown balls that look like applesauce in the middle Permaculture is no doubt incredibly exciting and has become almost a movement in itself amongst gardeners, but how practical is it? Can it stand up to the massive scale of our food system? Do you see permaculture being used in a large scale? I wish. In my naivety, yes. <laughs> um, but realistically, I don't think we could feed the amount of people we have with permacultures. And Dr. Reed would agree with Becky here. Um, I, I don't think that there's um, a lot of evidence that permaculture can be scaled well to an agricultural scale. Um, but again, I believe that everybody should have a, a, a permaculture garden, an edible forest garden in their backyard. Um, or if, you know, uh, there are certainly places where forest is not appropriate to the, to, the, to the biology, to the ecology of the place, you know, maybe it, it's an edible desert garden. Um, but I think permaculture is, you know, the permaculture principles are, um, are, are more robust in some ways than the, than the organic principles in terms of uh, fostering biodiversity. And so permaculture is, is um, definitely one of, the, uh, one of the things that we need to look at. I just think we need to look at it more on a household scale than on a, and a community scale than on a um, agricultural scale. Like, like growing, a, growing tomato plants by themselves and keeping them free of insects and you know, keeping the groundhogs out of your garden and keeping the deer from trampling everything and keeping the diseases from coming in is very challenging. But a robust permaculture system, um, you know, you can get lots of different kinds of food with, with, with relatively small amounts of effort. And, um, and that, I think, you know, has a lot of potential to help us reconnect with um, the process of, of growing food. And reconnect our with our own relationship with the earth you know this is for you know for most of our history that's what knowledge was that's what um that's what we spent most of our time doing is um is producing and procuring food and understanding the plants and the world around us 
and, and those were the things that were important to us. We've lost a lot of that knowledge and a lot of that, um, a lot of a lot of the motivation to to be interested in that as we've become better at growing lots of calories very cheaply, and um, and so I think you know the process of reconnecting to that is it's really joyful because it's part of our DNA, and I think at, you know here at the Culinary Institute that's why that's why most of us are here right to have a relationship with food, um, and you know that shouldn't just start at the back door of the restaurant you know it should start in the soil that's where food begins um, and that's where historically our relationship with food begins so making that connection re revitalizing that connection I think can be tremendously powerful and it can be really joyful too and some of my peers would agree with this statement I think we have to go back to our roots Almost. I think if we could encourage people, hey, your front lawn isn't for grass, it's for food. Your backyard isn't for grass, it's for food. If we can get people cultivating their own produce, their own fruits, their own vegetables, that takes a lot of strain off. And I think independent farms need to come back. If someone listening wants to make this reconnection, um, and start a permaculture garden, what's the first step? Because it seems like such a daunting task. What's the first step to get into something like this? YouTube, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm sort of joking, but, but there are, you know, there are, um, I, I, permaculture is one of those things that I, once people get interested in it, it, it can, you know, it really, it, it doesn't take a lot of effort to maintain. It can really suck you in because it's very exciting. Um, and one of the, the, the principles that I love in, in permaculture is the principle of a guild. And a guild is basically just one keystone plant um, surrounded by a lot of other plants that, that complement um, that one keystone plant. So for example, the keystone might be an apple tree. And you might plant garlic around the apple tree because garlic produces another crop that you can eat, but it also has a smell that deer don't like, so it helps to keep deer away. And you might also plant some rhubarb around the base of that apple tree. And the rhubarb has these big shade leaves. It's also a plant that you can eat, but it has these big shade leaves that help to um, shade out the grass that might be um, competing with the shallow-rooted apple tree. Um, rhubarb also has a, a deep taproot, and um, there are other deep taprooted plants like dandelion that can um, basically drill down many feet into the ground and bring up the nutrients that have over many years washed deep into the ground. And then as they die in the fall, they leave those nutrients on the top of the soil. And um, so a guild is basically a community of plants. It's, it's, it's biodiversity. It's permaculture. And I think anybody can start with one guild, with one keystone tree or um, shrub or something um, permanent that, that, or somewhat permanent, nothing's permanent that's alive, but an apple or a peach or um, 
something um, and, and uh, can learn relatively quickly the kinds of allies that might grow well around it. And if it's, you know, with a little bit of management, a system like that can be very robust, can produce you a lot of food and can be relatively low in maintenance because the plants complement each other. They're, they're providing the nutrition, they're providing the pest control. Um, and, and the other things that take so much energy in conventional agriculture uh, in terms of inputs into the system. While permaculture may not be a cure-all to the issues of our industrial farming system, it can serve as an exercise in shifting our relationship with food away from pure efficiency and towards environmental sustainability. Because while monocultures may not go away easily, change doesn't have to come from the top down. There's no need for us to wait for the industrial farming system to produce environmentally sustainable food when we can do it ourselves on a household and communal level. Now, it's important to acknowledge how idealistic this is. Of course, not everyone or every community can start their own permaculture garden, especially not the majority of college students listening, but I think there's a bigger takeaway here. Maybe the idea of permaculture is what's really important because it represents the antithesis of what modern our modern farming system is. It's on the opposite end of the spectrum. It replaces monoculture with biodiversity and replaces artificial inputs with natural ones. Acknowledging this is important because it can help us change our relationship with food for the better and show us the importance of a system that values longevity and resiliency over quantity and efficiency. But if you do want to get your hands dirty and physically reconnect with your food through farming and don't have the ability to do it yourself, there are still plenty of ways in which you can get involved. Oh, I think everybody should go and volunteer. Um, on a farm, um, and it, and there's this great website called localharvest.org um, that will uh, that will help to connect you with um, farms in your community. Anybody can go on it. There's lots of small farms that are listed on it, um, and if you send a, a few emails out asking people if you maybe you can come and volunteer for a couple of hours on a Saturday. I'm sure that you will get a lot of responses that are very enthusiastic yeses. But I think everybody should have that experience. You know, that's, that's really, you know, it's, it's, it's fundamental to who we are. If, if there's a student who's interested in growing food, they should send me an email and they should get involved with the rooftop garden or the community garden on campus or the apiary garden or the teaching garden. We grow, actually grow a lot of food on this campus. Um, and we always need help doing it. And, um, and so, uh, you know, if students want to email me at t underscore reed, R-E-I-D, at culinary.edu, um, I'll put them on the list. We go up to the rooftop on, on the SRC uh, twice a week on Tuesday, usually on Tuesdays from 10 to 11, and on Fridays from 2.30 to 3.30. Um, and we harvest food. We grow a lot of food up on that rooftop garden. Um, and through the process of regularly participating in that, students will learn a lot about, um, about how to grow food. And even if you're not interested in getting on a farm or on one of the gardens, there are still ways in which you can be an agent for change. Consumers have more agency than they ever have because they have more choices than they ever have. Uh, 
I think that there are very few places in this country where you can't find a farmer's market or a community-supported agriculture farm or um, a local farm that sells uh, directly through a farm stand or, or something like that. Um, and I think, you know, if you, if, if you want to act as a consumer um, to support a more sustainable and just agriculture, I think that's the place to begin, you know, is to, to, to buy food from local producers. Um, often you're going to be paying more for that food, but um, the good news is that it's usually worth it because it's higher quality food. It's fresher. Um, it's grown um, with, with better practices. Uh, it's grown in ways that sustain the soil, and the soil is the basis of all of the nutrition in, in the plants that we eat. So I think, you know, if we are going to act as consumers, that's the place to start. Well, that wraps it up for this episode. Like I said in the beginning, we can hardly scratch the surface of American farming in a 30-minute podcast. If you were keeping score with the pillars of sustainability, we only really talked about how farming could be more environmentally sustainable. So next episode, we're going to be focusing on the social pillar with conversations about food justice and food sovereignty. I'd like to thank Dr. Taylor Reed for all his help with this first episode, as well as Becky Petternell, and of course, all the students who came and had a conversation with me in the egg. If you want to reach out to me about this podcast, contact me through Instagram at Camden Miller. Episode two will be out July 16th. See you then.